Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I don't know if I have a life verse, but it's one of my core life verses. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I love how Caleb uh, provided a little interpretation, actually, from how that verse is usually read. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, or be submitted to Him, is what he said, which I love that translation. Be submitted to Him, and He will uh, direct your path, how you live your life. The path is like how you walk and talk. So the, the, the beauty in that is there is a way to live, okay? There's a way to live as God has defined it, as God has described it. And if you live that way in obedience to him, there is a prospering path. There is a, a, a place of, of God's provision as you trust him enough to obey him and live in such a way that honors him. I truly do uh, believe that. And so we're going to be... Um, in First Peter again, we're going back to First Peter now. Some of my folks who are a little details oriented, um, I'm not details oriented. I'm kind of a big picture guy. Go look at my office; it's a little messy. I'm a anybody else a, a piler and not a filer? Like you just that's me. I'm a piler, not a filer. I can usually find it. Just give me a minute, right? That kind of thing. Um, and so some of you are like, man, he is in this expository message. He's going through First Peter. He dropped off at First Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He is picking up today, and you've already read it. Maybe you've even got yourself psyched up for First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through following. I'm, I'm not going to be there today. <laughs> I'm skipping ahead. I will go back. I promise. I will go back. But I want to pick up in First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Because it's Mother's Day, I think because it addresses Christian family in a beautiful way as We've had here with baby dedication, and then even as we're thinking through the ideal, again, I tell you uh, that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a big passage for me. If you trust God enough to obey Him and live life in such a way according to His standard, according to His way, then I think there's a way of prospering for us and really a place of human flourishing as we trust Him. And so we're going to skip. I'm going to start in verse uh, 1 of 1 Peter 3. I promise we will go back and we will hit verses 11 through the end of the chapter soon. I promise that, okay? But today I thought this was just a fitting, a more fitting passage really for, for Mother's Day. And there are some tricky things that we're going to talk about today, but my prayer is God will use this and God will use his word to prompt you and maybe think about what's got to change in your life so that you might live more in obedience to him in all these areas that we're going to talk about today. Let me pray for us before we jump into the word a mile a minute. Lord, we love you and we are so thankful for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light into our path. And as we try to discern what your word is telling us today about how it's best to live in a Christian household, in Christian marriage, functioning as husbands and wives, Lord, I pray that you would inspire us to a higher standard. God, help us, even as the single folks in the room, Lord, that you would encourage them with these words to have a character in such a way, Lord, as what's being described here for the men and women in this particular passage. Lord, our heart's desire is to be ultimately submitted to you. And out of that recognition of your authority comes a heart of obedience. And I pray that out of that obedience, uh, that obedient heart, God, would be a, a people in this room seeking, Lord, to align ourselves with your word that we might follow you more closely. We need you in this moment. I need you as the message bearer in this moment. Lord, speak through me through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're starting in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, 
Notice he's got a direction here. Wives, in the same way, and we'll get there of what he's meaning because this is referring to what was just said. And we, again, we don't have that privilege of having gone through the end of chapter 2 yet. But he's saying, there's an example here to follow in the same way of what I've just described. Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles. I'm free. And the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be for that of your inner self, outer self, inner self here. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and even called him her Lord, or the word there is sir. You, her, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Verse 7. Husbands, likewise. By the way, uh, you know, women, you get six verses. Husbands, you get one today. It's Mother's Day. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What an interesting passage. What a passage filled with particular landmines that we're going to get to run over today on Mother's Day, which I think will be interesting today. I want you just to think about this passage for a minute. Think about the context, again, that Peter is sending out here. He's addressing not a specific church. We told you this at the very beginning. This is written to all the churches, all the Christians in a certain region or a certain area. And this was going to be read to those congregations, to those churches, as direction uh, for them. And as, as you notice here, I mean, notice the very first word here uh, tells us uh, exactly who he is addressing here in uh, this portion of the letter. And it kind of gives some insight because uh, at the subheading, if you will, the first uh, word in uh, 1 Peter 3.1 is wives. The first word in uh, chapter 3, verse 7 is husbands. And so he's addressing two different people in uh, the particular churches to which this letter is written. He's talking to wives and he's talking to husbands. And there's already people in the room going, well, that don't describe me. I'm a single person. Uh, I understand that. And your tendency might be uh, to shut me off right now and not listen to what I'm saying because I'm just talking to husbands and wives today. But I'm just going to say this. Uh, you might be single now. You don't know what God might have for you in the, in the future. I do know this. Singleness is described as a blessing and a gift uh, given by God. And so if God uh, seems sees fit for you to remain single, so be it. But there might be an opening in your life where you change marital status. And so I need you to take some notes for future reference okay, uh, about these things. Because I think actually they're more universal than just two wives and two husbands. I think these are applicable uh, to every woman in the room as it speaks to wife and also uh, to every Every man in the room as it pertains to husbands. Now, I'm just going to camp out on the first word here, wives, and the first word in chapter, uh, verse 7 as well, husbands. There is a, a, in this letter, there's an assumed role here that Peter is speaking to, uh, confidently, uh, to a majority of the people in this letter as he's writing to them. And remember, again, this letter is a broad letter written to many people. And, and, and what you don't know, it says uh, in verse 1, it says, uh, wives in the same way. And it says in verse 7, husbands in the same way. He's referring to what was described in chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, the very last half of that passage, which we'll get to eventually, is this de depiction of each of us being submitted to God. And out of our submission to God, there are roles with that, different authorities that we are submitted to as Christians living in the society at large, as far as uh, employees, as far as servants, as he describes it here in chapter 2, but also submitting uh, to the government 
government in that way. That there are authorities that we have to submit to as believers, but primarily we are submitted to Christ first and foremost. And from that submission comes a recognition and a way that we choose to live. We submit ourselves to the God-given authority in our lives because God has put us in these positions. Now, again, I want you to think naturally uh, how... Peter is describing what he considers most people in the room in first century Middle East, and that is that there are a lot of adults in the room, and that they are in families, and that those families have two positions in those families, a husband and a wife. Now, again, that is an assumption that Peter can make in first century Middle East, but I don't think it's an assumption that we just need to just gloss over and say, well, that's the assumption here. I want you to be to hear this and, and be clear in the assumption that Peter is making as he's describing the home and how God has designed the home for flourishing on this earth best for adults who are in a committed long-term relationship. It is marriage, okay? Uh, and I'll just say this. It's not right to play house, okay? It's not right to pretend to be married, as many are in the habit of doing, but to live with someone uh, with the expectations of a marital relationship without making that kind of covenant commitment actually shortchanges God's design for your life. And there are many implications that roll from that that I want you to hear because I want to, to protect your heart and to protect your life and to protect your house as you're thinking about these things. Maybe you're in that situation. And I'm going to say this. I love you and I'm speaking truth to you because I love you. I've had lots of conversations with people right now uh, over the last couple of years that are in this situation. I hear uh, excuses about, well, we're waiting on the right timing, or there are certain financial arrangements, there are certain complications with finances, or maybe it's just seen as inconvenient. And I always lovingly counter those excuses about not getting married, people that are you know, living together and not married with these kind of questions. Well, how does disobedience to God's standard mess up your sense of timing? Or how, what's the real price of disobedience to God? Or how much does your peace of mind cost to be in obedience to God according to his standard? Or what are the complications uh, to your, of your life that will be created by your disobedience to God in this area? How inconvenient will it be for you to be in direct disobedience to what God has provided as the standard for your life? And I'm not being mean. I'm being very direct here. And I want you to consider uh, marriage if you are in that situation now. Because alternate arrangements are, are not part of God's design for the home. And there's reasons why. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, God created marriage. It's funny because before God created the church, before God created the government, before God created the institutions, if you will, of, of education, God created the institution of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, we have God created Adam, then God creates Eve from Adam, and then we have like this wedding ceremony where God presents Eve, kind of like walking her down the aisle, if you will, and he presents her to Adam, and there's vows that are exchanged, and they commit themselves to each other from that moment. It's like the very first wedding ceremony. It's a beautiful picture, really, that we see it was God's idea. God's, uh, God's idea is marriage, and, and really... If you think about it, he is the author of those things. He is our creator. So God probably knows what's best for us, for human flourishing, and for us to thrive as human beings. And there are lots of complications that happen. Maybe you're in a situation like that. Maybe you've been in a situation like that before, and you can maybe empathize with folks who are in that situation right now. But I'll just say, you need to rectify that situation and get it right. I had a couple sitting in my office many, many years ago. And they were living together, and they were considering getting married. And we were just in this, you know, kind of premarital consultation and talking about things and kind of laying it out there for them. And these folks have been together for quite some time. And I said, you know, listen, um, I need you to think about what would be the difference between where you are right now, you know, living together, 
uh, not married, and us showing up on a day in the future, and, and we exchange vows and rings, and we lock this thing down, and you guys get married. What's the difference? What is the dynamic between that situation that you're in now and what the situation is going to be in the future? And they kind of looked at me kind of funny. It's one of those kind of divine moments, I feel like, when God gives you an idea. They were sitting in my office. If you've been in my office, there's a circle of chairs there, and there's a door open uh, to my office as I was meeting with them. And God just really told me to like get up and slam the door. And it wasn't in a mean way, but I did get up and I closed the door. And I said, here's the difference. Up until this point, there is a way out for you. When you are living together, if somebody doesn't meet what what you'd like for them to do, or they don't please you in a certain way, or you have a little tip or a little argument, there's always the exit door. There's always the opportunity for somebody to leave. And I said, when you get married, you are closing the exit door. And you're saying, I am here. Because here's the thing. If you don't have that, there is a great insecurity about people who cohabit, who haven't locked it in, who don't have that that commitment yet. Because marriage equals commitment. It puts skin in the game. And and it says, I'm going to be here no matter what. I'm making this covenant between me, you, and God. And I'm not going anywhere. And until uh, that paperwork is done, until there's rings on the finger, and there's been a covenant made in that way, there's always a way out. There's always an easy way out. It's too convenient to just walk out when the door's open. And so, again, that's just, there's so many that I could describe of why it's not the best way for you to do your life in that way. But that's one of the many uh, uh, to be in that situation. And so I'm just going to say this. If you're in that situation, come see me. Let's get a wedding date on the books. Let's do this thing. Let's make it right ASAP, all right? Um, and now there's another assumption that I, while I'm here uh, to address about what homes look like. Again, Peter is addressing wives here, and he's addressing husbands here. And again, there's certain assumptions that Peter would make that would be universally understood in first century Middle, East or Middle Eastern culture that we can't assume are universally understood in 21st century North America. And that is that a, a, a family unit, a house, is made up of a husband and a wife. He says husband, uh, wives in this way and husbands in this way. He doesn't address two husband situations. He doesn't address two wife situations, two wives, one husband, one husband, two wives, or whatever combination that you might want to make in that, because he he just assumes uh, that the biblical standard, and by the way, this is God's biblical standard, is one man, one woman, uh, united together for life under the institution of marriage, committed to each other in covenant commitment. Boy, it got really quiet in here. It's awkward. It's awkward. It's hard. It's hard stuff. I get it, because it's hard. It's hard to like it's hard because this, this is a hard topic to talk about because it's not understood in our culture. In fact, it's seen as antiquated for us to even be able to explain it that way. I mean, there, there should not be an awkwardness in this, but God designed the home in this way for Adam and Eve to be together in this home. There's no allowance here uh, for homosexual relationships as marriage is defined in the scriptures. And so I, I do want to say this, though. People living together and and people in homosexual relationships are equally sinful. It's equally the same because it's going against God's design. And neither of, listen, neither of those scenarios I just described, homosexuality or people living together, are any less or more sinful than the other. They're all equally sinful in God's eyes. And I will also say this, um, that there is also forgiveness offered as we acknowledge them as sin and we turn from those sins and we turn to him as we understand categorically they're contrary to God's design for marriage. The weird thing is that for 2,000 years, Christians could say that authoritatively and everybody kind of give the thumbs up to that, but we don't live 
in that day anymore. We now are seen as backward or not in lockstep with the culture when we don't conform to these matters that have been defined for thousands of years that are now trying to be reinterpreted over the last 10 years or so. C.S. Lewis said it this way. This has been a quote that has been stuck in my mind all week. When the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. (laughs) In other words, we've got to be okay with being on the wrong side of history, acknowledging that we're going to be on the right side of eternity. Does that make sense? We can't can't give up in the immediate what is the eternal. And so I, I want you just to think clearly about this. And having said that again, if you find yourself being tempted in or in the midst of either one of these kind of sinful lifestyles, I need you to hear clearly that God loves you, that he wants you to trust him enough to live in obedience and in accordance to his word and acknowledging that it's sinful. But as you turn him, acknowledge that it's sin, acknowledge that you want to turn from that and accept his forgiveness for those things. And as you turn away from those things and turn toward him and trust him to live according to his design, he will forgive you of your sin. I want to be just like Jesus in John chapter 8 when the woman who was caught in adultery is brought to him. And everybody's picking up rocks to throw at that, at that young lady. Jesus turns to her and says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. In other words, I don't hold it against you. I will not condemn you, but I will encourage you to turn from it, see it as sin, and turn from it and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness for that situation and move forward. Hope is there. Hope is there, and I love that. Now back to the word here. Let's go back. That was the first word. Uh, Let's go to the first verse. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Point number one, wives have been called to highlight Jesus. Now, we see, we know from Philippians 2, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. He submitted to the Father. He was trying to please the Father. He, he left his seat of glory. He submitted himself and became obedient, we're told in Philippians 2, obedient to death. Took on the human likeness and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, as he submitted himself to God, the Father's authority over him. And this beautiful picture of submission is really what Christianity is about. And it's applied here even as we describe it. So yes, on Mother's Day, I'm two for two. Talking uh, three for three now, uh, you know, talking about people living together, talking about homosexuality. Never going to talk about submission. I'm just hitting all three line minds all at once in the first verse of First Peter three. Yeah. Now I want you to get the tenor of what Peter is saying here, and we'll, we'll try to really hone in a bit on what submission looks like. Because by the way, we've all been called to live lives of submission. We've all been given a God a God given role in this. But Peter, in the, in the overarching picture here, Peter is challenging married ladies to live a certain lifestyle that demonstrates a reverence for Christ in such a way through their submissive spirit, through, through their life and honoring Jesus, that it would capture the attention of their husband in such a way that they would say, I want what she's got. Now, I know even on Mother's Day, there are folks in this room, there are ladies in this room who are coming without their spouse. There, there are men in this room who are coming without their spouse, and they are, they are the believing member of their marriage, and their unbelieving spouse may not, may not even be here with them. And you come faithfully, and you come regularly, and I need you to hear this. Peter is saying, there is a chance, okay? Peter is saying, don't give up. Peter is saying to double down, even in this, to, to double down and to be the proof of the gospel to the people who live closest to you. You know, people may not read the Bible, People may not watch a YouTube sermon online somewhere, 
but they will watch the lifestyle of the people closest to them. And what Peter is saying, if you find yourself, if you're a believing spouse, this is not just for a, a believing wives, this is for every believing spouse in the room who is married to an unbeliever, that to demonstrate for them that through your life that you might carry yourself in such a way that you might be the proof of the gospel. Now think about the scenario Peter is describing here. He's describing a husband who is lost, who watches his wife day in and day out, how she carries herself, how she responds to him, even in his sinfulness, even in his uh, rejection of Christ. And he sees what she is doing and how she lives, and he sees that and says the gospel must be real by how she carries herself. In fact, Peter even describes it as to win someone over without words. That they might even just watch you, watch your reactions, and watch your heart, and see how you make a response to him. And so that person says, I, I want to have the same faith because I see what Jesus has done in the life of my spouse. And I know that even for some of you, as you hear me describing this, this would be the answer to many prayers. And I'm going to encourage every person in this room who is married to an unbelieving spouse, who's a believer, to keep praying, to keep, listen, to keep putting that example out there. And I know it's hard. I know every person in this room, a believer who's married to an unbeliever, is that sometimes you wonder if it's worth it. Sometimes you've even wondered if, if you need to leave your spouse because they're not on the same page with you spiritually because this is not for the, the faint of heart. And by the way, uh, this should be a, a little lesson here for every person in the room who is single, who might be thinking about that person who, might, who, who you might marry in the future. Take note of folks in this room, take folks note of the people in your life who are believers who didn't marry somebody that were on the same page with them spiritually and how much frustration that has brought about in their life and in their marriage. And just remember, that spiritual dynamic is super, super important for somebody that you want to do life with, somebody that you're going to partner up with that's going to determine the trajectory of your life is to walk with somebody who is also a believer because this is what can happen here is what we see here in Peter's describing is that, that there is a situation where somebody loves Jesus with all their heart, but they're paired with somebody who doesn't, and there's ultimately frustration here. And this is why Peter says, don't give up, have a renewed sense of hope here because it's possible now, I'm going to say this, it might take years. It might take years, but you've got to determine to be faithful and show that person what a faithful follower of Jesus looks like and see how God might use it. If you're in that situation, what is, what is your unbelieving spouse seeing in your heart and in your reactions right now that is a proof of the gospel? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Again, I'm trying to encourage you to double down and to increase your prayers to be that consistent model. What, what do they need to see? What does an unbelieving spouse need to see out of a spouse who loves Jesus? Well, Peter, again, takes this a little further. Keep going in the word here. Go back to verse 1 and 2 and following here. This is the difference-making qualities of a believing wife. Now, again, I think some of these are universal, but there are some touch points here, I think, for, for ladies in particular, for women in this modern society that I think are so important. He says at the end of verse uh, 1 that, that, that they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of their life. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold or jewelry or fine clothes, but rather it should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So here, Peter is addressing here, uh, to unbelieving spouses in particular, as he's kind of taking this out a little further, 
what that looks like. And again, that is a particularly uh, vulnerable and potentially volatile situation to be in. But Peter instructs here the ladies to live their lives in such a countercultural way that it might, that it might get the notice of their, of their husband who's unbelieving. And he describes first a, a sense of righteousness. By the way, notice I don't say perfection. This doesn't mean that that, that we've been called to perfection. It means that we've been called to strive for righteousness. It's a heart position to try to honor the Lord with our actions. And even as we sin, we seek to make reconciliation with God and with our fellow man and with the people and our families because we're in a posture of repentance and we want our lives to be a demonstration, an arrow pointing upward, saying that God gets the credit for any good that comes out of our lives. But, that, but we're striving to honor God in that way. And that is fleshed out, it says, go back to the passage here uh, again in, at the end of verse, at, at verse 2, when they see these two things, purity and reverence. The word purity, hagnain, is, is a sense of uh, pure from carnality or modest, pure from every fault, immaculate or clean. Obviously, what he's describing here is the place of intimacy and sexuality. And he's describing for married ladies to be devoted to their husbands. And again, I don't think this is just for other ladies in the room. I think this also pertains to married men in the room. To be devoted to your husband, to be devoted to your wife, and to be devoted to them alone. That you aren't looking outside your marriage for intimacy in any way, whether emotional or physical. Your heart, your thoughts, and your eyes are only for that covenant partner that you have committed to in your life. Some of you are saying, well, I'll do that one day when I get married. I'll, I'll commit to purity then. But let me just say, if you're single in the room, commit to purity now. It doesn't just look, there's not something magic that happens when this ring gets put on your finger. Or when you stand before a preacher and you say the words and sign the paperwork that you now have a heart of purity. You need to be, cult listen, single people in the room, you need to be cultivating a heart of purity now. Some of you may not even know your future spouse, but I will say it this way. Be committed to, if God provides, your future spouse, even the future spouse that you don't know yet, be so committed to them that you are pu choosing purity now so that you might be pure when you meet them and do life with them. It's a decision you make now. I, you don't just flip a switch when you get married. Purity, the, the, the challenge for purity is a character that you develop over time. And so it just makes sense that if you're striving for purity now as a single person when you get married, that will just carry on the trajectory that you've already chosen in the secret place of your character. And so he's describing people that are devoted in this way. And the interesting thing about this day is, I mean, we live in a promiscuous day where God's standard of purity is antiquated. It's seen as out of date. Uh, but I'm just going to say that that it's not. It's, it's current. It's what God wants for us. He designed us this way. It's for our best. And by the way, um, most people don't air this all out in public, their intimate life, but God sees your intimate life. He, he knows your, your thoughts and he knows your actions in this way. And just strive to live a life of purity. This is for each of us, but for the ladies here as well, but also for men as well. He says here, reverence, purity and reverence in verse 2. This word reverence is actually the root word for the word phobia which is a fear, a dread fear, if you will. It's kind of that, that hush that comes over you when you walk into a big cathedral and everybody's kind of got their head bowed, just, you, know, you know, to be quiet. Everybody's kind of like, shh, because there's a reverence in the room. It's that same sense of reverence that you have about your life. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's where knowledge begins when we have a healthy, by the way, there is a healthy fear of God. When you acknowledge His authority over your life, when you're when you acknowledge he is 
first and foremost, and he is the Lord of your life, and you're seeking to honor him in this way, and so you're not wasting your life, you're, you're taking your, your life seriously, you're not wasting it on unimportant things, and you respect God, and you're seeking to reverentially offer up your life, as we talked about last week, as a living sacrifice to God, and to honor him in every aspect of your life, because you know one day you're going to be held accountable for your life, and you want to offer up your life as a means of honoring and obeying God, your king. Now this, this, this other one is where I really wanted to camp out, particularly for our ladies today. And that is, Peter describes a striving after inner beauty. Now, Peter spends some time explaining this more than any other dynamic in the whole passage. Start in verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes, but rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Now, it's interesting because I think Peter's addressing a real felt need in first century Middle East. And by the way, that same felt need or the same pressure that Peter is describing to the ladies here in first century Middle East is the same cultural pressure that many ladies feel in the 21st century North America, and that is that somehow there is an equivocation between my beauty or my appearance and my worth. That I'm going to be judged by how I look and that people will make a value judgment of my worth to society based upon how I look on the outside. And Peter here is hammering in to say, no, it's not about the outer beauty, it's about the inner beauty. It's about the inner person. Have you ever met somebody stunning? I'm talking just a beautiful person, a stunning person. And you, know, you say, wow, that's, God has made that person so beautiful until they open their mouth. I don't mean their teeth. I mean, it's like, I'm talking about the words, the attitude, the, 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 you know, how they, how they see the world. It, and it just comes out in such, and it is, it ruins, it ruins every part that was on the outside as they open their mouth with a filthy mouth or a critical spirit or whatever. You know, Jesus said, actually, what defiles a man is not what comes from the outside in, it's what comes from the inside out. And really, Peter here is saying, the inner beauty trumps outer beauty every time because that's what God cares about. So, going back to Old Testament, they're picking a king to succeed Saul. And David comes from a big family. Jesse's got lots of brothers. And they bring out Samuel the prophet and they line up Jesse's family who they know there's going to be a successor for Saul to come from Jesse's line. And they bring about the sons one by one, the biggest, tallest, oldest, better looking ones first, I guess. And so they work through all the sons and Samuel's like, no, neither one of the, none of them are the one God wants. Have you got any more sons? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, I forgot about David, the scrawny one. He's like out there with the shepherds on the field watching the sheep. And so they bring David in and 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 tells us a little bit about how God sees people. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Praise God, five foot seven. <laughs> and shrinking. For I have rejected him. The Lord, listen, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. Amen? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. Think about that. The world is consumed with the outer appearance, the outward person, but God really considers the inner person. I got a question for every person in the room. How beautiful are you to God? 
How beautiful are you to God as God sees your character, not what Hollywood says, not what London says, not what Vogue magazine determines as beauty, but how is the beauty of your heart? Listen, are you as obsessed with your heart as you are with your hair? That's a real question. Think about it. I may probably give you some indicator. We live in a consumeristic society. I've told you this about other things, but it, it really does, it matters here too, a consumeristic society. And what I mean by that is we all have been told we're consumers. And so uh, we're, 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 you know, bombarded with uh, advertisements and we're told to choose. And the reason why we choose certain things over others is because of convenience or because something's more appealing. And we're just consumers. We see everything as consumers. This re- the reason why some of you go to big box stores as opposed to mom and pop stores because uh, there's a value in that. You, you'll choose to do that. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll be consumers uh, to everything else around us. And what I'm afraid of is that, that many ladies have bought in, listen, to a consumeristic society, and they perceive themselves as commodities. Listen, commodities to be consumed or to be chosen by those around them. And so we have to advertise ourselves with the most flashy packaging. We have to use social publicity to try to draw attention to ourselves so that we might uh, uh, draw the attention of potential suitors. And so you got to be really careful because you're not a commodity. You're not something to be bought and sold. You are a child of God who loves you from the inside out, not from the outside in. And we get, listen, we get so consumed with the packaging and the flashiness. And by the way, it's okay to wear clothes. He says here, okay, it's okay to wear clothes. It's okay to wear jewelry. It's okay to, you know, to, to, to fix up the hair. I mean, it's okay to put a, a coat of paint on the barn every now and then. Okay, I'm not saying don't do those things. <laughs> what he's saying here, listen, is that those things don't define you. They don't define you. The outer does not define you. And if, listen, ladies, don't be so consumed. Because what, at the end of the day, listen, at the end of the day, your physical appearance will change. It's fleeting, as Peter describes here. I got this little picture in my office that I keep for premarital counseling purposes. It's a picture that was taken of me and Chrissy. I believe right around the first year or two that we were married, and I have a full head of hair, and my cheeks are a lot less full. My wife, by the way, never changes. She's like eternal. But I, tor- I turn to my part of the picture, I say, look, when you marry somebody, you marry them for life, and the outside's going to change. I even say this, one day, you might be in a nursing home changing the other person's diaper. Are you okay with that? Listen, because we get so consumed with the externals and the outward appearance. That's what Peter said. That's not where your beauty is found. That, that's not where your va- listen. That's not where your worth is found. That's not where your value is found. It's not found in outer adornment. It's not found in elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold. He says, the, "What what is attractive? What should be a scene about you? The inner beauty of the person, the inside person matters. The inner heart of the person, and it's more important than what label you're wearing or how amazing your hair looks or what flashy thing you've got on your hand. It's about the inner beauty. And by the way." Uh, Peter takes it a step further as he's describing submission here. Go to verse 5 again. He says, we got th- we've got this. In other words, he says, there's models for us biblically before now. He's pointing to Abraham and Sarah here. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her sir or Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
Again, this is an extension of Peter's command in verse 1 for wives in the same way to be submitted, uh, to submit themselves to their husbands. You know, a, a better way to translate that word submitted, I believe it's loaded with such controversial uh, overtones in our society. It could be translated to be to yield to their husbands or to willingly subject. It's not a, listen, it's not a call to be a doormat. It's not a call to be a servant. It's called to defer to the husband as the head of the home in that position of leadership. And it's a conscious choice to yield to one's husband's leadership. It, and actually, it can be a beautiful expression of love. As Listen, as long as the one yielding and the one being yielded to are in the right heart position. In fact, Ephesians 5.21, Paul describes this to both husbands and wives. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, both husband and wife are submitted to the Lord. Both are submitted. Husbands live in submission as well. They're submitted to the Lord. But the extension of that as they are submitted to Christ is that they are submitted to one another. And that mutual submission comes out in different ways. For the wife, it is to defer, if you will, uh, about the big decisions that have to be made for the household. John Piper defines it this way. Submission is the calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. And to help carry it through according to her gifts. In fact, he, he says that this was, uh, Peter tells us, this is the heart that was defined uh, by Sarah toward Abraham. And by the way, Sarah and Abraham is Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 23. I can't do all that today. If you want to go do a deep dive into Abraham's life, it's very deep. And there's so many complications. But I will say this, that Sarah followed her husband's lead even in the midst of very difficult situations. And as I told you, that word Lord can also be defined as sir. In other words, a cultural nuance here is to say that Sarah willingly submitted uh, to the head of her household accordingly as was asked of her by the Lord. It's really an, ex uh, it's really an example of yielding to one's uh, submission as leader in the home. Now again, this is an uncomfortable topic in our era. I'm just hitting all of them today. Okay, uh, But actually... This is uh, not lessening, and I think this is defined somehow as lessening of women's value, but I don't see it that way. I see this as actually the opposite of that because God has designed the home and God has ordained the order for a home to, to function well. And by the way, again, both men and women have been called to live a life of submission. And let me just say a word to the men here. God is going to hold you accountable to be the leader of your home. But he doesn't want you to be a tyrant. You're not to use that position as a dominating position or, or, or making, by the way, don't run roughshod and go make stupid decisions by yourself, men, right? God has, listen, God has placed a wise counselor by your side. You would be foolish and idiotic, listen, to not talk to your wife about making major decisions. If you're like me, my wife is very wise, and I, I ask her about everything we do. I run it by her. Why? Because I trust her. Listen, she lovingly, listen, trusts me to submit, even though my wife might be smarter than me. But she, listen, when it's all said and done, she trusts me to make the right decision. Why? Because she knows that I love her and I love the Lord. And I'm not going to use this to dominate over her or to somehow go rogue and just make foolish decisions. Because at the end of the day, a decision has to be made in the home, okay? Whether it's about finances or major uh, responsibilities, major decisions, those things have to be made in consultation. You shouldn't go rogue on that. But here's the, it, sadly, okay, sadly, somebody has to make a decision. Somebody has to make a decision. And the point is, is that we make this in concert, 
if there's an impasse over a certain decision, and I could probably count those maybe on like two hands, uh, over 23 years of marriage where there was a major decision where we had a direct impasse, it is to defer to, to my sensibilities in that way. And she's, she's done that. And by the way, if it doesn't go right, guess whose shoulders it lands on? If it was the bad decision or the wrong decision, I have to shoulder that as the responsible leader of my home. And so there's, there's that responsibility. And many men shirk that responsibility even on the other end of that. Many of them abdicate their authority in this way. But by doing this, we are setting ourselves in obedience to the Lord because men, you are to lead your family, submitted to Christ, and with a heart to serve your wife and to serve the children. And if, listen, in that same sense, uh, many of us, uh, if we had the right heart and had the right, the right mindset about our wife and our, our children, we'd make the right decision for their benefit. But many men don't do this. And many, many men, uh, they abdicate this authority in the home. And this is really a call for the men in the room to step up in this way, to lead, to provide, and to mutually submit to the people that are entrusted to our care. I found it this way. A godly woman will gladly submit to a godly man who seeks the Lord and considers his wife and children as precious people to be entrusted to him to seek his protection and his provision in his life. Let's skip down to verse 7 here. So uh, we had six verses to all the women. Now we got one, one left here for the guys. It is Mother's Day, so you get one verse. But it's an important verse. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker. Now, as it's describing weaker here, it's about strength, physical strength. As the weaker partner... And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Point number three is that husbands have been called to love like Jesus. Now again, this idea of mutual submission is here because wives, it says in verse one, wives in the same way be submitted. And it says in verse seven, husbands in the same way be considered as you live with your wives. There's a call here of mutual submission, but it fleshes out in different ways. In fact, I'll, I'll say this, that, that husbands, uh, if your wife submits to you, she trusts you. She's like, she's, she's like hooking her ship to your sail, you know, like she's, she's aligning her life with your life. And so you need to see that as a sacred trust and you need to treat your wife with the consideration that she deserves because she trusts you. Sometimes you wonder, why does she trust me like that? You're right. We give our wives a reason not to trust us sometimes, right? We, we make foolish decisions, but, but they have sought out to, to let us lead in that way. And so if you think about it, submission actually is willingly submitting to someone, knowing uh, that they have to have that position. And so she's willingly yielding to your leadership, and you've got to protect that trust that she is putting in you. So there's two words I'll use here out of this verse for the men. Two, two commands, to respect her and to protect her. To respect her and to protect her. It's an acknowledgement, as he says here, referring to women as, as the weaker one. Now, again, don't get offended at this, ladies. It's just you know, physiologically, and again, this has been challenged somewhat in our culture today of what's a man, what's a woman. I mean, genetically, we know what a man and what a woman are, and typically a man is physically stronger. He, is a, he has more muscle. His, 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 his bones are, 
are, are made in a different way, aligned in a different way. He has a different kind of physical strength. And basically he's saying here, you've been given that strength, but not to act as a tyrant, but to harness that strength for God's design so that you might respect the woman in your life and you might protect her because God has given you that gift. Your wife is trusting you, and so you use your strength and your competence to level up to that role, and you respect her, and you take care of her, and you provide for her. And you value, listen, you value her as the gift God has given you. And if you are physically stronger, you don't abuse your wife physically with your strength. If you do, you're a coward. Your strength has been given to you men so that you might respect and protect your family, particularly your wife. And so... On this day, above all others, as we're valuing the women in our lives, that you recognize that your wife is God's gift to you. And her yielding or deferring to you is a choice that she's making out of her reverence to God. And you dare not abuse that trust. Don't misuse that. Protect her. In fact, you're supposed to see her as a spiritual co-heir. Look at verse 7. And as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, you are co-heirs with Christ. This is your brother or your sister, uh, uh, husband. This is your sister in Christ that you've been given. You've been entrusted to you. And so you better, you better protect her and you better respect her. Again, I want you to think about this position, man, for just a moment in the families that have been entrusted to you. Paul, uh, Peter says here at the end of verse 7, if you don't do this right, there are consequences. Look at this last little phrase. I'm closing here. He says, if you do this in such a way so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's hot. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, there's consequences if you don't take your role right, men, and you don't lead in such a way, and you don't respect and protect your wife and your children, and you don't take that, you abdicate from that place of authority, and you don't use your strength in a proper way, he said, that that will hinder, God won't hear your prayers. They'll bounce off the ceiling and hit you back. Now, we know this from Matthew chapter 22, when they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he said, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God vertically, and also love your neighbor. Well, hey, married people, who's your closest neighbor? Probably the person you go to bed with at night is your closest neighbor. And so, listen, if you don't have it right here, if you're not right on this plane with your husband or your wife, if y'all aren't reconciled and in a good place, guess what? It's going to affect here. God's not going to hear your prayers, husbands. If you're not loving your wife and protecting your wife and making the right decisions and leading your family in a proper way and humility and submitted to Christ and just living life as a tyrant, God's not going to hear your prayers. That's what Peter says. There's consequences. So, listen, you're on two planes. I've got to get things right with the people in my family, my neighbors, the closest neighbors in my family, and i got to get things right here with God. And if I don't have this right, this is not going to be right. It's going to stand as a barrier to those things. And that's why, listen, all the things we talked about today are so important because you got to get those right. you got to get this right so that this can be right with God. That's what he's saying to the men. Respect her, protect her. Whew, that's a lot, wasn't it? Man. Now you see why we were late getting started. First service went along today. It's important stuff, though. I think it's really important to chew on these things today. And I want you to think about, how. okay, how does this apply to my life? Well, number one, are you submitted to, to Christ? Is Jesus the, the, on the throne of your heart? 
Are you submitted to him? Because listen, this idea of submission and authority, it doesn't work unless husband and wife are submitted to Christ's authority. And out of that, to submit to one another out of reverence or submission to Christ, it comes first and foremost submitting to Christ. Are you submitted to Christ? Secondly, ladies in the room, those things I just talked about, maybe, maybe, you're, in a, maybe you're in that situation and you're married to an unbelieving spouse. I'm just encouraging you to keep praying, keep living the right life, show them Jesus by your actions, and don't give up, don't lose heart. That's for husbands and wives who find themselves in that situation with an unbelieving spouse at this moment. Maybe you're in an alternative to the household marriage as I described. Maybe you're living with somebody. Maybe you're in a homosexual relationship and you realize, man, that's not how God wants it for me. I just want you to know that that is a sin, but it's a sin to repent of and to turn from and to make right. And let's make that right soon, now. Wives, ladies, all the ladies in the room, have you, have you been dependent upon how the world sees you and the beauty that you're supposed to uphold somehow as your determinant for worth? Or listen, are you concentrating on the heart and the inner person? Husbands, are you taking that rightful place of leadership in your home? Under the submission of Christ, to serve your wife and your children, to demonstrate what it looks like to love and protect and provide and to value 